He wanted to plant a church in a very diverse area to say to our world that there's hope. There is gospel hope through the work of Jesus for a right relationship with God and a right relationship with one another. And we feel like the east side of Atlanta just beautifully represents that. One of my deepest prayers was that the Lord would lead a brother to lead this plant with me. And God in his grace answered that prayer way beyond my expectation by allowing me to meet Rod. And just as we began to get to know one another, we came to the conviction that we think we can do this better together than we can apart. And every Sunday you have this beautiful picture of the diversity of God's kingdom. Absolutely, and people who I think their idea of what it means to win has nothing to do with is it my idea or is it his or her idea, but does this idea or does this initiative advance the kingdom? People are black and white and brown and rich and poor and male and female and young and old, but fundamentally, we are all made in the image of God. We are sinners who need a savior. And we all, if we trust in Jesus, are made brothers and sisters by the work of his blood. I want to tell you a story. It's a story about people who do some of the hardest, most important work on earth. They start churches in places where people tell them, we don't need church. They provide food and shelter for families who don't even have the basics of life. They share the gospel everywhere for everyone. They are North American missionaries. It's always been hard doing what they do, but it's not always been like this past year. When the world shut down, the easy thing for them would have been to wait, hold off, or to stop. But that didn't happen, and it never will. Because for your North American missionaries, the mission always moves forward. We're still sharing the gospel. We're still impacting lives. We're still here. We never stopped. Right now, your North American missionaries are adapting. They're innovating. They're coming up with new ways to take the gospel into places it's never been before. You can do that when you have tens of thousands of people like you who give to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. Ministry costs money, and so your giving enables us to continue to spread the good news of the gospel. You see, no matter what's happening around us, when the world says stop, God always says go. That's why we're seeing new churches planted, we're seeing needs met, and we're seeing believers baptized. It's what happens when God's people give, pray, and go. Thank you for praying for your missionaries because prayer is powerful. And thank you for giving to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. As you do that, you provide the fuel that moves the mission forward. There's so much work to be done. Now, more than ever. It's estimated that there are 275 million lost people in North America. And so, what happens next in this story is up to you. Amen. Thank you for your strong giving to missions as a church. Of course, I don't have to remind you, at Christmas we exceeded our international mission goal by over $35,000 and uh, we are expecting with this goal as well that we will not only meet it but exceed it so thank you for your generous giving guys upstairs it seems a little loud to me I don't know if it does to folks out there if they're hearing what I'm hearing but uh, sort of loud and reverberating and echoing if you would address that 
uh, we all certainly would appreciate it. But uh, again, just when we think about Annie Armstrong and North American Missions, our North American Mission Board is involved in uh, at least 33 key main areas in the largest metropolitan cities across North America. You know, around here, you and I drive down the street and we encounter a church here and a church there and one there and one there and one there. I mean, just all over the place. The Charlotte metro area is one of the most, along with Nashville, Tennessee, along is one of the most churched areas in the entire nation. And so we take for granted sometimes churches, churches everywhere. You get into some of these other areas, though, and uh, you just don't see that many churches, certainly not evangelical, gospel-loving, gospel-preaching churches. Uh, my own daughter and her family is involved in one of the North American uh, church plants. It's a replant in the St. Louis area, dynamic, young, growing church that moved into a facility, I guess, where a church had in years past closed its doors. And now there's a vibrant uh, church replant going on there that is reaching that area. And that's what your dollars go to help do. And so, again, thank you for your uh, generous giving. I did mention the last couple of weeks that after two weeks talking about celebrating our foundations, that on today, Palm Sunday and next Sunday, we would have more regular message time, sermon time. And that's what we're going to do today. So find Isaiah chapter 52 in your Bible. And this morning, we're going to look at the subject matter, what a Savior. Amen? What a Savior. And we're going to concentrate, of course, on Isaiah 53. But let's begin where the thought begins at the end of chapter 2. And I'm going to invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Isaiah 52. And we'll start in verse 13, and uh, then we will just keep going right into chapter 53. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. I'm in chapter 52, verse 13. I see some still looking. I'll start over. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. And shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities." Father, we're so thankful for this text of Scripture in the Old Testament. Centuries and centuries before the Incarnation, how you told your people of a suffering servant who would die in their place and suffer. And through that sacrifice, many would be justified. Father, as we read this text, we know that he is speaking of the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Lord, as we have begun what many refer to as Holy Week, leading up to Easter, Lord, grant it that often this week we would reflect upon your suffering in our behalf. Lord, that we would look at our lives in light of that. And that we would bring you glory in all that we say and do. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. It was March 15th, 1859. And the, and the greatest preacher in the English world that the English world has ever known stood to the pulpit in that Metropolitan Baptist Tabernacle in London, England. And he said, this morning I'm going to preach on the subject matter, Christ precious to sinners. Of course, I'm speaking of Charles Spurgeon. And as he opened up the sermon that morning, he started with a story, the story of a young man who was preaching one Sunday in the presence of an older veteran pastor. 
And afterwards, the younger preacher went up to the older preacher and asked a very dangerous question. Said, what did you think of the sermon today? I, said the veteran, it was a poor sermon indeed. What, said the young man, a poor sermon? Yes, indeed, a poor sermon it truly was. Did you not like my research into the text and how I presented it? I spent many long hours poring over the text and in prayer and putting this exposition together. Oh yes, I enjoyed that. It showed a great amount of study and fine scholarship. Did you like my illustrations and all of the life application that I did? The veteran preacher said, oh yes, you did a very fine job with all of that. Then what, may I ask, made it such a poor sermon? If as you say I did such a fine job with the text, then why did you call it a poor sermon? And the older veteran preacher said there was no Christ in it. No Christ in it, said the young man. Our text for the day had nothing to do with Christ. Young man, would you say that throughout our beloved England, in every hamlet, in every village or town or city, that there are roads that lead from that place to London? The young man said, yes, I suppose so. Then young man, there is not a place in all of Holy Scripture that does not lead ultimately to Christ. It is not our duty then, or is it not our duty then, as those who hold the sacred scripture to help our listeners to find Christ. And that is what you did not do today, young man. You know, I must admit, while acknowledging that Christ is certainly the one that all of scripture indeed points to, I have felt a struggle sometimes as... Some of you teachers have reading a certain text and you struggle to see how in the world do I make a road to Christ from this text. There is one there, but how do I make that road clear? That can be a struggle at times. But I can assure you there is no struggle from our text today. We see Christ in almost every word, every phrase, every verse. What a wonderful story of sacrifice for sin Isaiah 53 tells. It's a wonderful narrative, a great story. And you know, everybody loves a great story, right? You get wrapped, something about a story, a narrative, you get wrapped up in it. I mean, guys love a good story, a good action movie. Shoot them up, blow things up, racing cars, racing motorcycles, that type of thing. Girls, ladies love a good story, a drama, a romantic movie, something of that nature, right? Everybody loves a good story. 
There's no greater story than the one found here in Isaiah 53. It's got mystery and action. Somebody's going to be betrayed. Then someone is going to be violently murdered. But the basis behind it all is love. In fact, the greatest love, God's love. And so there's action, there's mystery, there's love all rolled into one. Isaiah 53 is the record of Jesus suffering for our sin and paying the penalty for our sin. Approximately 700, a story that was told 750 years before the event even happened. I want you to think about that. The marvelous nature of prophecy. This is a prophecy. A prophecy of the life and death of the Lord Jesus. I don't know if you realize it or not, but in passages like this, we could include Psalm 22 along with it. We find more detail here about what happened at Calvary than we even see in the four gospel accounts themselves. Isaiah 53 has been called many things. It's been called the heart of the Old Testament. It's been called the loftiest peak of messianic prophecy. And it's been called the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. In this passage we see the exaltation of the Lord Jesus. We see the humiliation of Jesus. And we see the substitution of Jesus. As we begin this Holy Week leading up to Easter, I want us to concentrate today on what this says about the cross and Jesus' sacrifice for our sin. Because after all, the Bible says He died the just for the unjust. So let's look first today at the exaltation of the Lord Jesus. And I want you to focus back on those closing verses of chapter 52. You know, it's kind of unfortunate that chapter 53 doesn't actually begin at verse 13 of chapter 52. That's where the thought begins. And that's why I'm starting there. Right away, before we get into the painful verses... You see that there's a promise to us that everything that the suffering servant goes through, all of the pain he experiences, all of the suffering will not be for naught. The suffering of Christ will not be in vain. We're told right off that he will act wisely, or as some translations say, his mission will prosper. So right away we have this promise of his ultimate exaltation, his ultimate success. And how all the suffering will not be in vain. What I like about this, we're told up front how it's going to end. It's going to end in victory. I don't know about you, but I love that about a, a movie, a suspense, or 
sometime Connie and I will be watching some series on Netflix and it'll be driving me crazy to find out how it's going to end. What's going to happen to this character? What's going to happen to that character? And so you know what I do? I'm Googling. I'm trying to find out what's going to happen and I find out and it drives Connie absolutely nuts. And I'll tease her. I'm going you know, to tell you. I'm going to tell you how this turns out. You better not. Sometimes you're reading a book. I mean, is anybody with me this morning? You'll turn to the back and see how it ends because you're so caught up in it and you want to see what happens to that character. And you're like, oh, it turns out good. And then you can go back to the beginning and start reading it and being a little more relaxed about it. <laughs> I'm not the only one. Well, that's how these verses are. God gives us the end of the story. He takes us to the mountaintop. He allows us to see the beautiful view from there. And then he takes us back down into the valley before we end up on the mountaintop again. And so in verse 13 he says, Behold, my servant will prosper. What God is saying is his mission will prosper. It will not fail. Despite what they yelled at the foot of the cross, despite the mockery, the insults, his mission will not fail. He will be high and lifted up, Isaiah says, and greatly exalted. Not just exalted, but greatly exalted. And in verse 15 he says, he will sprinkle many nations. Folks, this is atonement language in the Old Testament. This is a picture of how the priest would take a, a piece of a clump of hyssop, which was a plant with a great deal of density to it. And he would dip the hyssop into a bowl, the shed blood of the sacrifice. And then he would walk over to the altar and he would sprinkle the altar with that blood of that sacrifice or if he was in the Holy of Holies, he would sprinkle the mercy seat. It's atonement language. It's a reference ultimately to Jesus' shed blood and the ultimate sacrifice that would put an end to all other sacrifices. Hebrews 9 speaks of this, beginning in verse 11 of Hebrews 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? His sacrifice. You hear what the writer of Hebrews is saying? Those, those goats, those bulls, all those animals. That could never be a complete sacrifice. Those sacrifices only pointed to the great sacrifice that God was going to make one day in His Son. A sacrifice that would be complete, that would never have to be done over again. 
He goes on to say that kings will shut their mouths on account of him. You know, I'm reminded of a psalm that speaks of everyone, kings included, having to be silent before Christ one day. I'm speaking of Psalm 2, and as I read it, you just listen to to the way Psalm 2 develops a narrative here. The psalmist says, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence. And rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son. Worship Him. Lest He become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. But how blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Amen. It's like Isaiah is saying. By him, many nations will be sprinkled. People may mock. People may reject. Rulers may reject. But you better come to him while there's still time. His mission and what he was about will succeed. The exaltation of the Lord. Well, let's look secondly at the humiliation of the Lord Jesus. The humiliation. Beginning there in verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should, should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Folks, who would have ever thought that God was going to do things this way? And I guess that's why in the Christmas narratives that we read at Christmas time out of the Gospels, the the birth narratives, I should say, of the Lord Jesus, when the wise men come to the religious establishment and ask where Christ is to be born and they point to Bethlehem, the the religious leaders don't even bother to go and investigate. 
They didn't think God was going to do things this way. So humbly. They wouldn't have thought about a baby. Especially not a baby born to a poor couple in a little out of the way place like Bethlehem. I mean, who would have ever thought that God was going to do things this way? If you're writing the script or I'm writing the script about how the Messiah is going to come into the world, it wouldn't be what we would read in, in Matthew and Luke in those birth narratives. We would have done it another way. We would have had him come in royalty and splendor. But he came so humbly. Look at what Isaiah says here. He grew up before him like a tender shoot. Jesus was son of Mary and Joseph growing up in the quiet surroundings of a little place called Nazareth. An ordinary village. A small village, by the way. Probably only around 200 people, 250 people. In John chapter 1, Nathaniel, when he questions the Messiah coming out of Nazareth, remember what he said? Hmm, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Again, it's not what anybody would have expected. In the minds of the men of the age, he was, supposed to, he was supposed to ride in as a conquering hero, a mighty soldier or king who would immediately throw off the Roman oppressors. He would be a figure, a revolutionary, kind of like Barabbas, you know, a renegade, a warrior, even a violent man if need be, and he would set up God's kingdom right then and there. And that's why when Jesus didn't act that way, what did the people begin calling for? They began calling for the release of Barabbas. Maybe Barabbas and the other zealots can overthrow Rome and bring in the kingdom of God. The whole entire earthly life of Christ, if you think about it, it's not the way the people would have expected God to act. And on a day that we, we're celebrating today, Palm Sunday, they were still expecting some of these grandiose things. And so when Jesus is finally riding into Jerusalem, that some of them are thinking, okay, here we go, it's ready, it's set, Hosanna, today is victory day. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're laying down their palm branches in his pathway, and they're taking off their outer cloaks, and they're laying those down in his pathway. So they're thinking the swords are about to come out, blood is about to be shed, and the Romans are about to be defeated. And here's Jesus riding in on a donkey. Again, they would have expected a, a stallion, a, a military animal signifying power. But Jesus came riding on a donkey, again in fulfillment of Scripture. Scripture prophesied all of this. And yet the people are caught up in their own foolish expectations of how they thought God was supposed to act and how they thought things were supposed to be. 
And folks, let's be honest. We still do that today, don't we? We're convinced sometimes God is supposed to do this and this. We have all of our preconceived notions. And so some people today, you know, they have trouble with why, why does God allow evil and suffering? Why do the righteous suffer? And they're thrown by, by the things they see. Why is the world so bad? Why does it seem sometimes like the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? God doesn't always do things the way we assume he will. And then sometimes God allows things that we don't think he should allow. And then some people stand back and what do they say? There must not be a God. My God wouldn't do something like that, whatever they mean by that. You've heard that, I have. It's the same thing we see in the passion narratives in the Gospels. By weekend, when Jesus hadn't overthrown Rome, what, overthrew, overthrown Rome, what are they yelling by the end of the week? Crucify him! Crucify him! Again, Jesus came humbly. Not only was he like a tender root, but also like a root out of dry ground, Isaiah says here. The house of David was only like a stump. The memory of David was faint. It was distant. The spiritual climate of the day was dry. But out of that stump, out of the dry ground, came a root springing forth. And quietly... Slowly, the root growing in the land. Only after 30 years does Jesus begin his public ministry. And people begin to see it. A few begin to understand. Like Nicodemus who said, Jesus, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. A few begin to see. Isaiah says, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. There was nothing about Christ in his physical person that would normally attract people to a person. Remember in the Old Testament, the people chose Saul to be their king. Because he was good looking and he stood a head taller than everybody else. And so the people said, he's got to be God's man. And they made him king. Even today, people are attracted to good looks and height. If you're a man running for political office and you're tall, dark, and handsome, then right away you have an automatic advantage over all of your opponents. If you're a lady and you're a beauty queen, automatically you have an advantage over all of your opponents because people are drawn to you physically. They're attracted to you. But God didn't want his son being judged by outer appearance. Dr. Harold Wilmington said years ago, the late night talk show host would have never considered booking Jesus for an interview. Already it was bad enough 
why some people follow Jesus. They follow him just because they wanted to see his miracles. They just wanted to be fed. They, they wanted their immediate needs to be taken care of. Same way people are today, following the Lord for the wrong reasons. Maybe they're attracted to the sensational. They, they just want to be entertained or, or they want God to meet some kind of immediate felt need that they suppose that they have. And instead of God setting the agenda, they want to set the agenda and they want a God on their terms. We're the same today, folks. But God didn't want it this way with his son. He didn't want something like looks or physical appearance or the sensational to be what would attract people to Jesus. He was ordinary. Humble. I wonder what we would think of Jesus today if he could walk in looking the same way he walked during the time of the Gospels, but of course with our modern attire today, if he walked into our midst, would we even know him? Would we even recognize him? I would assume not. He came humbly. Well, the third thing I want you to see is the substitution of the Lord Jesus. Read with me verse 3 and following. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Folks, we see the suffering that was involved in his substitution for sin. What's Isaiah say? He was despised and forsaken of men. I want you to think with me about all the times in the Gospels that men turned away from Jesus. The Pharisees said on one occasion... That he had a devil. That he was doing what he was doing by the power of the devil. Even Jesus' own siblings, his half-brothers and sisters, did not come to believe in him until after his resurrection. He was despised, Isaiah says, When when Jesus said, I'm the bread of life in John chapter 6, and he said, those who eat my flesh shall never hunger, uh, hunger again. The Bible says the multitudes didn't know what to make of that. They didn't understand the sense in which Jesus was talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And so John lets us know that from that day following, many in the multitudes who were following after him turned away and followed him no more to the point that Jesus even looked at his 12 disciples and said are you going to turn away too he 
was despised and forsaken. Isaiah goes on to say he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus knew the pain of both body and soul inflicted upon him by others. He knew the sorrow of people turning away from him. He knew the sorrow of seeing people go their own way and reject him. He saw the grief of Mary and Martha at the tomb of their brother Lazarus and he wept. And you know what, folks? I'm glad that Jesus experienced all of this because in Hebrews chapter 4, here's what the writer of Hebrews says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Aren't you glad that Jesus knows what it's like to walk in our shoes? He knows what it's like when your heart is breaking, when you're going through suffering. He knows what that's like. He's experienced it without experiencing sin at the same time. And because of that, when all these things happen in your life and you go to God in prayer and you're heavy in your heart, He understands all of that. And He's able to intercede before the Father on your behalf. So yes, I'm glad he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. I'm glad he came humbly and, and lowly. I'm glad he experienced all of this. But then the picture becomes even more clear in verse 4. None of his suffering was because... Of his own sin. You know folks. That was the belief in the Old Testament days. Right up to the time of Jesus. The thought was. If you're going through trouble. If you're suffering. If you're struggling in life. You've done something wrong to deserve it. Job's friends, that's what they kept trying to drive home to Job. Job, you need to acknowledge what it is you've done wrong because you're, you're facing trouble, you're facing suffering, you're facing loss and grief in your life. You've done something, Job. What is it? It's an attitude we can even, we can even have today. You go to work and you hear some man at work, he, maybe he's lost his job, he's gone through this, his wife's left him, his kids won't talk, and maybe a little bit in the back of your mind. Now, in reality, he, he may have done nothing, but in the back of your mind a little bit, what are you thinking? What's this guy done? But verse 4 says, our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. He was pierced through for our transgressions. I, I'm going to ask you to take a pen out, if not now, at least later, and where it says our, you can even write my, you know, or even your name beside that. Scott's griefs he bore. My sorrows he carried. He was pierced through for 
my transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquities. The chastening for my well-being fell upon him. By his scourging I am healed. You see, he did it for us. Substitution. Where am I in this picture? Where are you in this picture? Look at verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned to our own way. Boy, we like that, don't we? I've turned to my own way. Some of you older people in the audience this morning, what do you think of Frank Sinatra, his song, I did it my way. And we're proud of that. But that's the problem. I did it my way, and my way was sin. And your way was sin. The book of Proverbs says, There's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. And so what's Isaiah say here? The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Folks, that's substitution. All through the Bible, God allowed a substitute to be made for sin. It might be a ram or a goat or a sheep or a bull or a dove. And all of those sacrifices had to be done over and over again because they were incomplete. And as I said earlier, they pointed to a better sacrifice that God would offer himself in the fullness of time. In Jesus, the substitution to end, all substitutions would be made. That's why on the cross, Jesus said what? Tetelestai, it is finished. And why the writer of Hebrews says there is now no further substitute for sin. Jesus died the death that I deserve and you deserve. Because we went our own way. And he bore our sin, our sorrow, our grief, our shame, our iniquities. He bore that and he died. And when he died, Paul in Romans 3.25 says, he's the propitiation for our sins, the means by which God's wrath is turned away from us. Someone said Jesus took our hell that we might partake of his heaven. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God through him. John R. W. Stott says, The concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts 
penalties which belong to man. Aren't you glad he did that for you? The whole Old Testament teaching about the Passover lamb was a lesson in substitution. In your mind, just go back. The Jews started celebrating last night at sundown. Start celebrating Passover this year. And they'll do so through April the 4th. Go back in your mind with me for a moment to the book of Exodus. And you'll remember that the lamb was a substitute for the firstborn male in the land of Egypt. And so they were to take the blood of the Passover lamb, sprinkle it on the doorpost. And God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over that house. Those lambs pointed forward to Christ. Remember what John the Baptist said? Behold the lamb, when he pointed to Jesus, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In the time of Jesus, outside of Bethlehem, in what used to be the fields of Boaz, the shepherds raised lambs. Some scholars today say those lambs kept outside of Bethlehem, at least some of those lambs, were special lambs. They were Passover lambs that would be brought to the temple in Jerusalem during Passover week and sacrificed there. They would bring those lambs into Jerusalem through the sheep gate and on that same day Jesus was riding through the eastern gate on again what we call Palm Sunday making his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The lambs were being brought into Jerusalem in one gate. Jesus, the Lamb of God, coming to Jerusalem through another gate. Those Passover lambs were examined for three days according to the law because the priest had to make sure there was no spot or blemish in them. If there was any spot or blemish, those lambs had to be cast aside. In those same three days, Jesus was under a microscope. The Pharisees were examining him. The Sadducees were examining him. The Herodians were examining him. The civil leaders were examining him. They were all questioning him and challenging him. And they could find no blemish in him, nothing wrong. Finally, Pilate said, I find no basis for a charge against this man. The Gospels tell us they finally had to produce false witnesses so they could come up with charges against him. Jesus was the perfect Lamb of God. Verse 7 tells us, verse 7 of Isaiah tells us how he took it. He took it silently. During seven illegal, unfair trials... He never tried to defend himself. He was innocent. The authorities knew it. Pilate admitted it, but handed him over anyway. He never tried to defend himself. Hebrews 12, 4 tells us why. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Because he knew what it was going to accomplish what his death on the cross would accomplish for you and me. He could have stopped it. He didn't. 
Remember Simon Peter when Jesus was arrested? He took a sword and cut off one of the ears of of one of the guards. And Jesus said, Peter, put up your sword. Do you not understand? I could call 12 legions of angels if I wanted. And yet he didn't. He kept silent. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. By oppression. It was all a farce. And yet he allowed it for you and me. Verse 8 of Isaiah 53. He was cut off out of the land of the living. He died. Why? Isaiah says, for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. Verse 9, they would have tossed his body in the potter's field with the other crucified criminals, but he was buried instead with the rich man in his death. Imagine that, folks. 750 years before Joseph of Arimathea, a rich Jewish man, took him off the cross and laid him in his tomb, Isaiah had already prophesied about all this. Is that not amazing? Verse 9 reminds us that he was innocent. He may have suffered and died like a criminal, but God was not going to allow him to be buried like a criminal. Then in verse 10, we're told so much there. Who killed Jesus? Well, the Jews called for his death. The Romans executed it, but actually God had him put to death. It pleased the Lord to crush him. Remember what Jesus said? No one takes my life from me. I lay it down. The Bible says from the foundation of the world this was God's plan. But then notice how Isaiah ends this thought. Back to the exaltation a moment. Back to the mountaintop. He will see his offspring. I want you to think about this. How can a dead man see his heirs? Because he's not dead anymore. He lives. Amen? He will prolong his days. Jesus is at the right hand of God. The Bible says he ever liveth to make intercession for you and me. Verse 11 says God was perfectly satisfied with his sacrifice. The Father's wrath was turned away. And many justified as a result of his sacrifice. Verse 12 points out, he will be exalted. Folks, isn't this a great chapter? In closing, let let me read to you from the New Testament, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 and following. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever. I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, 
Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. And that's what Isaiah was preaching too. Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Do you boast in the Lord? Do you boast in the cross? Or does the cross still seem like foolishness to you look to the cross look to Jesus he will save you he died for you can I please help somebody here this morning to understand that he died for you in your place That you might be reconciled to a holy God and stand before Him complete one day. Look to Him. Hebrews 7.25 says, He will save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him. There's no other way. No other way. Perhaps somebody here this morning needs to do just that. Come to Christ. For the majority that have, I'm going to invite you this week to meditate on Isaiah 53 and be reminded of what all He suffered for you and me. And as you read this chapter again in your own devotions, What does it demand of us? Obviously demands our faith in Him. Should Isaiah 53 though impact any way in which you and I live on a daily basis? I think so. Father, thank you for this narrative. Jesus suffered and died was raised again on the third day as we will celebrate next week. And God, I am so thankful that it was not for naught. It was not in vain. It was your plan and your purpose all along. Thank you for the redemption that we have in Christ Jesus. Lord, so often when we look at people today, we see people trying to establish their own righteousness before you. And they set aside the righteousness of God in Christ. God, open their eyes that they might see that righteousness is in Christ and Christ alone. Somebody here this morning, open their eyes to that.
And Lord, may all of us read this text again on our knees and reflect what you did for us. That we might know you and be with you for all of eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?